to you all. It's good to see you. Uh, glad for those who are joining us online. Uh, we're continuing our study of Paul. We, we got into the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians last week, uh, and so we're going to try to finish that off today uh, and finish off uh, a little bit more about uh, Paul's uh, stay in the city of Ephesus. So not, not the letter of the Ephesians, but his time in the city of Ephesus. Uh, so to, to say our schedule for today, uh, so we got six chapters left of 1 Corinthians, uh, and then we're going to talk about some more about what happens in Ephesus. There's a, a riot, uh, so some big problems there for Paul, and then perhaps even some deeper, darker problems, uh, maybe involving wild animals. Uh, so we'll uh, see what we can figure out about that as we go as well. To recap what we've been talking about, uh, we're on what's commonly called Paul's third journey, but I, I think of it as his fundraising journey, uh, because he's got this idea uh, that he wants to raise a special collection for the Christians in Jerusalem. And so he's traveling to these cities that he's already been to before and telling them, set aside some money each week, and I'm going to come pick it up, and we're going to deliver it to the, the poor in Judea. Uh, so he goes through Galatia and tells them, starts setting aside money. He tells the Macedonian Christians and the Achaean Christians in Corinth uh, that he, he's got this plan for this fundraising uh, uh, that he wants to do. Uh, he also is going to spend a significant amount of time in the province of Asia, uh, which is the, the pinkish, reddish area on the map where the, the main city would be Ephesus. Uh, so he spends uh, a couple years in the city of Ephesus uh, while he's doing this fundraising. Uh, his letters uh, to the, the church in Corinth uh, talk about his fundraising plans. He mentions it uh, his, in the letter to the Romans. Uh, so it seems to be a big thing that he's working on during this trip. Uh, we, we talked about 1 Corinthians. You can almost outline it as a series of problems uh, that he's just going through a checklist. Uh, some of these problems are things he's, he's heard about uh, from people who have visited him in Ephesus. Uh, some of these problems are things that the, the Corinthian church actually wrote him and asked what he thinks about these things. Uh, and so he, he's just going to go through this list and think about these problems in light of Scripture, in light of the gospel, to help them uh, decide what really ought to be done. So last week we talked about factionalism, discipline for sin, lawsuits among Christians, getting married and remaining single, food sacrifice to idols. Uh, today we have head coverings, the Lord's Supper, uh, spiritual gifts, and, and I, had, I hadn't mentioned resurrection here as a problem, uh, but if you read 1 Corinthians 15, it does seem that there is something he's heard about people who say they don't think there's anything after this life, uh, that there doesn't, you know, we die and that's the end. Uh, so he's really addressing people who deny the resurrection, uh, and that, that leads him into a, to a big discussion of what the resurrection is and what that's going to be like. Uh, but there does seem to be this, this seed of a problem that he starts with his addressing. Now, I'm going to be going through these pretty quickly again. Uh, and some of these are maybe a little bit uh, contentious. There, there's uh, disagreement about these. Uh, so I realize uh, 
going through three minutes each one is not the best way to, to give a full explanation. Uh, so I apologize. Uh, you may have something to disagree with me about here, uh, but I, I hope if you do have something, we could talk about it later because this is intended to be a very fast uh, overview of these issues. And that does happen to be the, the first one about head coverings is perhaps a place for disagreement. Uh, so let's jump in here. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and he's going to, to deal with this issue of head coverings. We'll just read through it. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's for this woman that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Well, that's a cryptic little phrase there, Paul. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman comes, came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Doesn't the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory? But long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so we've got a problem here. Uh, but this is not only a problem in the church of Corinth, this is also a problem for us to try to figure out what's Paul talking about. Uh, because it's clear he understands the Corinthian culture. Uh, he understands what this issue is about. Uh, but for us, a head covering uh, is maybe a little bit uncertain. Is it a veil? Is it something you know, in front of the face or on top of the head? Uh, he talks about hair here. Uh, what, what did he really he really talking about? Perhaps the, the uh, most familiar thing is, hey, maybe this is just, he's talking about long hair. Um, and he's saying women should uh, have their head covered, means they should have long hair. Men uh, should have their head uncovered, they need to have short hair. I, I, when I read this, I, I actually don't see this as what I think he's talking about. Uh, he talks about the head coverings, but he, he, he's making a comparison to hair. He says, a woman who has, has her head uncovered, it's like she has her head shaved. And if you think it's bad for her to have her head shaved, then you also ought to think it's bad for her to have her head uncovered. So it seems to me there's a comparison. He's saying head coverings are like long hair. Uh, and so that when later in the passage where he does make a connection between coverings and hair, I think he's still drawing a, an analogy, a comparison between the two, so that when he's thinking of head coverings, uh, he's actually thinking of something beyond just long hair. 
that, that gives us, puts a problem for us uh, because uh, if it's not about long hair, we, we have not taken him very seriously about uh, people covering or uncovering their, hair, their heads. Uh, very few Christians uh, really think that women ought to have a hat head covering. Uh, that's not been the, the view of most of Christianity throughout most of history. Uh, and so if he's not talking about here, we have some issues here. Maybe the, the, the next thing people would say was, well, this is just cultural. Um, but you, you read this, and he's talking a lot about here about the, the created order of things. Uh, so I asked the question, is this about creation, or is this about culture? Because he starts off with this, this view of this ordering between God and man and woman and how each one is the, the head of the other. And it seems to be like this is a, a, a fundamental, universal truth about the way things are. Sounds like a very universal teaching. Uh, but then when he starts talking about how head coverings are like uh, long hair or short hair, that seems to be more like a, a cultural comparison to say, well, if you think it would be inappropriate for a woman to have her head shaved, then you ought to think it'd be inappropriate for, for her to have her head uncovered. Uh, that doesn't seem to be quite as, as universal in its application when he starts talking about the, the comparison with hair. Uh, but then he switches back again, and he goes back to the, the, this uh, structure uh, going all the way to creation, that man was created first and, man, and woman was created for, for man. Uh, so once again, going back to a universal principle. Uh, and then he, you keep reading it. It's always judge for yourselves. Uh, no other churches do it this way, uh, which doesn't seem like the, the, sort of, the same sort of argument at all. Uh, so it, it's difficult to, to read here how he keeps moving back between this universal principle and this situation in their culture. Uh, and that perhaps maybe one way for us to, to move forward with this is just to acknowledge that there is a universal underlying principle here coming from creation. Uh, and that's going to, to manifest itself in each culture in different ways. And for this Corinthian church, it's going to be about how they cover their heads. Some cultural explanations I, I've heard, there's probably even more than this, uh, about what, what do these head coverings mean in Corinth. Uh, one idea is that uh, married women would typically cover their heads to show submission to their husband, really to show that they are unavailable. Uh, and so that a married woman who has her head uncovered is sort of disrespecting her husband by, by sending this message to people that she is available. Uh, but if you, you want to show that you are committed to your husband, you would then cover your head. Kind of the flip side of that would be that, well, maybe it's the, the uncovered head that's the sign of availability for perhaps prostitution. Uh, and that when these women are uncovering their heads, they're sending the wrong message to their society. Some people suppose that you know, this, this ties in with uh, pagan worship and that pagan priests or maybe pagan priestesses covered their heads, uh, and it was, it was based on the gender. Uh, and so 
because the, the Corinthians are trying to, to bring that practice into their church, uh, or they're, they're, they're concerned about being viewed with that practice in their church. And so uh, there's different ideas about that as well. Uh, I'll say, I, I, I don't think there's a good definitive answer of what, what's happening in Corinth at this time. So we, I guess to think about our application today. So we read this passage. Uh, we've got a few options of, of what to, how to take it. Uh, first, we, we can go with the long hair thing. I, I said I don't really think that's the, the right one here, uh, but that's been a, a common application is that women should have long hair and that men shouldn't have long hair. And that when he says head coverings, he's talking about the hair. So that's one possibly a common application uh, throughout time. Uh, at various times, maybe we've said you know, women should wear hats at church and men shouldn't wear hats. Uh, and so uh, that one hasn't uh, held today. I guess maybe I don't see a lot of men wearing hats, so half of it has maybe stuck. Uh, but we also see this kind of in our culture as well, that uh, as a sign of respect, men can will take off their hats. And so it's hard to say when this is a cultural thing and when this is a biblical idea that we're following. The, the, the third option, uh, which we have, to be, we have to be careful when we start saying, well, this is cultural, uh, because that gives us the, the freedom to, to really uh, say anything is cultural. But I, I do think uh, this is another option for us, is that men and women should appear modest by whatever standard of their culture. That it's not the role of Christians to defy the gender norms of their culture. And modesty is this thing that you know, shifts over time, shifts from place to place. Uh, and we, you know, we've seen that over our own lives, that the, the modesty of our own culture has changed. But uh, men and women should not try to to be on the, the cutting, bleeding edge of what is appropriate for their gender. Uh, and so when Paul's telling these people, you know, you, you need to stick within what is expected in your culture, and that would be uh, that men uh, don't cover their heads and women do cover their heads. Uh, but I realize this is not a, a very satisfying answer to, to let you pick whichever one of these you, you choose. Uh, but that's all I'm going to give you this morning. You can uh, think about it some more on your own. We've got to keep moving to the Lord's Supper. Uh, we appear to have this problem in Corinth that the meal for the Lord's Supper is not being distributed fairly. And we can tell this is, it doesn't appear to be just the, the, you know, the little tablet of, of wafer and the tiny cup of juice that that's be hard to distribute unfairly if everybody just gets a tiny piece. But it appears that they were doing this as, as a meal. This is like their fellowship meal, and as part of that, then they also practice the Lord's Supper, and remember the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so some people are taking too much food, uh, and some people are not getting anything to eat. Uh, but they're doing it in this time where they're supposed to be remembering Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus. And so Paul's principle here is to eat and drink to discern the body of Christ. 
Now, I think what he's saying here is, if you're going to remember the time when Jesus uh, gave himself for other people and didn't do what was best for him, you know, the ultimate selfless act, how can you celebrate that at the same time you're going to be stuffing yourself with food so that other people don't get anything? How can you celebrate Jesus' selflessness and be selfish at the same time? Uh, and so he points them to the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. Uh, we'll read this together. We're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, now in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Chris has been talking about the Lord's Supper. He's going to continue talking about uh, the Lord's Supper during our, our worship time. Uh, but I, so I want to maybe focus a little bit on it uh, today. Uh, you have to remember, when Paul's writing, what other books of the New Testament have been written? Well, we have Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that he wrote, I think, before 1st Corinthians, uh, maybe James. Uh, but I don't think any of the Gospels had been written at this time. And so here we have Paul giving us the first recorded uh, account of the Lord's Supper uh, before Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded that in their Gospels. They're, they're not going to write for another 10 or 15 years, perhaps. Uh, so Paul is, is the one, even though it's kind of further back in our New Testament, this is the first account of the Lord's Supper. And he, I, I maybe got a little bit too in the weeds here, but uh, you start comparing the different versions. Uh, so Mark 14 has it, Matthew 26 has it. You read the, the two accounts they have, and their accounts are, are almost word-for-word word identical, uh, which is pretty impressive, considering this is 30 or 40 years after the event, uh, and being written down in a language probably different than how it actually happened that night. If Jesus was speaking Aramaic and they're translating it into Greek, it'd be pretty impressive for them to, to use the same exact Greek words uh, when they record what's happening. Uh, and so you're like, you know, one word different between the two. Uh, so we could say, well, this is, this is inspiration, uh, and God gave them these words, and so it makes sense that they had the same words. Uh, but I think it's Maybe unusual that he didn't give Paul those same exact words uh, because none of these are the, the exact same words that Paul uses. It's obviously the same, same event, uh, same ideas about taking bread and uh, giving it out and giving thanks, uh, except for you know, this is my body. Paul does have that. Uh, so I, I think rather than say this is some sort of you know, inspiration works in this word-for-word -word way, to say probably one of these guys is quoting the other one. Uh, and I think Mark is written first, and Matthew is just using Mark uh, to tell the story because what Mark is saying is accurate. And so you keep reading through this, and it's all just about exactly the same. I don't know if you can, can see the blue 
uh, versus the black on the, on the screen or not, uh, but their, their words are almost the same, uh, that, especially about the, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, uh, and this, this promise that I won't drink again of it until uh, I drink it in the, the kingdom. Uh, so just a couple minor changes between the two. Now, what's interesting is when we get to, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, which I think is written knowing uh, what Mark has written and knowing what Matthew has written. Uh, but Luke is also a traveling companion of Paul. And so he is also familiar, perhaps, with what Paul has written. And so when you start to read Luke, uh, he starts off, actually, his is a little bit different. He starts with the cup, uh, the cup first. And when he, he's just describing what's happening with the cup, he's using the, a lot of the same words from Mark and Matthew. I tell you, I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That, that's the same idea that's in Matthew and Mark. Uh, and then he starts off after that cup uh, with the bread. Uh, now, I will say, the, the Passover meal uh, had these, these kind of rounds of drinks where you'd pass a, a drink around multiple times. Uh, so that it's not, he's not just uh, trying to mess things up. That, that could have actually been the, the way uh, this meal happened with, with multiple passings of cups. Uh, so he, he gets into the bread and says, this is my body, but then do this in remembrance of me. That was the same words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Uh, so it appears that Luke uh, has read 1 Corinthians, uh, and he's using that as a source. He, he, he wasn't there in the Last Supper, um, and he's using all the sources that he has available to him. He, he incorporates the words of, of Matthew and Mark, uh, but also the words of Paul that Matthew and Mark appear not to know about. Uh, and then Luke has this second cup, uh, and for this second cup, uh, here he's using the words that Paul also remembered, that after supper he took the cup, and the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, so he uh, uses both Matthew, Mark, or uses all Matthew, Mark, and Paul to, to give the, the fullest account of what happened at the Last Supper. Uh, so I, I think that's interesting. Maybe you don't. Uh, just say, I, I think... I think Luke uh, is the only gospel writer who has read Paul. Uh, I don't think Matthew and Mark knew what Paul was writing when they wrote, uh, even though they wrote after him. But, but Luke was closely tied to Paul, and he, he did know uh, what Paul has written. Uh, so I think that's the explanation there. All right, spiritual gifts. Uh, it appears the problem in Corinth is that some people value these, these flashy, charismatic gifts, uh, like speaking in tongues, uh, which, you know, that's lots we can get into there. Uh, and Paul says that that's fine. Uh, those gifts can be good, uh, especially if you have someone who can interpret what was said, uh, but they need to be in service of the greatest gift, uh, and that is love. Uh, and so he, he goes into a very familiar passage to us in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the, the importance of love. 
that if you are speaking in tongues without love, that's just making a noise like a symbol. Uh, and that's, that's for the context when he's, he gets into this. He also uses this illustration. I think it's pretty familiar to us. You know, a body has many parts, uh, and each one contributes differently. So in the church, there are these different gifts, and each one uh, will contribute in different ways. So that's his uh, explanation there. Finally, the, the resurrection. Uh, and I, I mentioned I didn't have this down originally as a problem, but it does seem that there are some people in Corinth who are doubting that there will be a coming resurrection, uh, that maybe uh, after this life is over, that's the end. Uh, and we don't have any promise of anything beyond it. If you read the Old Testament, what, what promise is there of a life to come? Uh, but for Paul, he points to the resurrection of Jesus and says this confirms our own resurrection uh, and points out, you know, why, why would you even be doing all these things, living this way, if there weren't something ahead? Uh, so that's his, his argument for the resurrection. Uh, baptism for the dead, that'd be interesting. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to skip past that. You'll have to research that on your own, I guess. Because uh, we, we need to finish up our, our checklist here. That gets us through all the problems in 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul has, has given a biblical gospel principle uh, to respond to each of these issues. Uh, and that, I think, gives us also uh, an example for us to follow uh, in our own issues that come up is seeking out a gospel biblical principle uh, for discerning what uh, is the right thing to do. We're going to jump back in now to Acts. Uh, So Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, from the city of Ephesus uh, in the middle of his fundraising journey, his third journey. Uh, But there's a little bit bit more excitement that's going to happen in Ephesus. Uh, So let's Go over to Acts 19 and read about this. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. Now, this is because of his collection. He makes clear in his letters. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This Demetrius recognizes there's a a problem uh, with Christianity for the status quo. Uh, And it's not simply a religious problem that affects uh, the temple of Artemis, uh, this is an economic problem for him and for his 
people who make silver shrines. Uh, I think it's a a reminder to us that uh, the gospel can often challenge the status quo, not just uh, religious status quo, but that's going to mean economic status quo and uh, I'd say politically uh, affect the status quo as well. It affects every area of life. Uh, When the people heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him, not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a worked-up crowd here. I will say, uh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You read that in Greek, and it has a really nice cadence to it. Uh, I, I could see people chanting that. Uh, it just rolls off the tongue, has a nice rhythm. Uh, but two hours is still a long time to, to repeat that. Uh, but this is, this is your classic uh, you know, protest riot chant. Uh, it, just, it sounds really good. Well, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we wouldn't be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, we see, even though I think Demetrius has a fair point, that this is threatening uh, their business. Uh, Once again, uh, Paul has the benefit of Roman law and order. And the government officials point out they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't broken any idols. They haven't uh, tried to deface the the temple. Uh, You don't have anything that they have actually done. And if you did, you need to pursue it through the courts. Uh, So once again, Paul... uh, has realized he has a, a bit of a friend in Rome. Uh, the, the time will come when, that is no, when Rome is no longer his friend. Uh, but so far, uh, it, it served him well to get him out of these, these jams. We saw it in, in Corinth when Gallio let him free. Uh, we saw it in, in Philippi when he was released from prison. Uh, that uh, law and order has, has held so far, uh, but maybe not for long. So we had this, this problem uh, with this, this riot, this protest in Ephesus. Uh, but it does seem that, that Paul has something else uh, that's happened to him 
at this time uh, that Luke doesn't really talk about. You read about this when he writes his letter to the, the next letter to the Corinthians. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Sounds to me to be a pretty low moment for Paul. If somebody came up and said, I'm not sure about going on living anymore. I think I'm going to die. Uh, I think you you would recognize they they need some some help at this point. Uh, This is a a pretty serious moment. Uh, But it's not exactly clear what what he's referring to. Um, you know, was it was this, this riot that happened? Uh, was it that concerning? Uh, was he uh, perhaps thrown in jail in Ephesus? There's a lot of people who think uh, some of his letters from prison were actually written from prison in Ephesus, uh, but Luke doesn't mention that either. Uh, there's also this, this mention in 1 Corinthians I face death every day, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? And we think, wild beasts? What, what is that about? Uh, and I, I can tell you, I, I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, but there are, this is a, something that people have wondered. Uh, and people have tried to fill in the gaps uh, with their own imaginations. Uh, There's all these later Christian writings uh, that talk about the life of the apostles. Uh, And sometimes we... They're they're making stuff up. I want to make that clear. Uh, But I think they're they're really just wondering, uh, like we're wondering, what what did happen in Ephesus? And they, they try to fill in the gaps. I don't think they're trying to be malicious when they write these things. Uh... I think they're just trying to, to be creative, and they, they should have maybe specified that they actually didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, but there are some stories about Paul and some wild beasts in Ephesus. Uh, these come in, in a, a book from much later called The Acts of Paul. Uh, so not inspired, uh, not true, uh, but interesting, I think. So let's, let's turn to The Acts of Paul. Uh, people who, who wondered, what are these wild beasts that, that Paul fought in Ephesus? Now, those who drew up the travels of Paul have told that he did many other things, and one of these things happened in Ephesus. Paul spoke freely in the city, but he enraged the people. Well, that sounds accurate. They put his feet in chains and threw him in prison in order to feed him to the lions. Now, the whole uh, feeding Christians to the, the lions in the arena... That's a little bit later than Paul, so this is why you shouldn't believe this story. Uh, we have this interlude then. Uh, two women, Eubula and Artemilla, wives of eminent, women, eminent men among the Ephesians, had been following Paul, and they came to the prison at night and asked to be baptized. And by God's power, Paul was loosed from his iron fetters and was escorted by angels to the seashore. And he baptized the women and then returned to his bonds without anyone in the prison, realizing what had happened, and he was kept as prey for the lions. So it doesn't have anything to do with the wild beasts, but it, it is a fascinating little bit they have included. It's a little bit of the, the Peter being released from prison story, uh, but with Paul, and he gets put back in prison after 
after he's done. Anyway, uh, the next day, a lion of huge size and unmatched strength was let loose upon him, but it simply ran to him in the stadium and lay down at his feet. And when many other savage beasts, too, were let loose, none were allowed to touch the holy body, standing like a statue in prayer. Uh, so this is perhaps uh, Paul fighting the wild. It doesn't sound like he actually had to do a lot of fighting, though. So uh, it's a nice story, uh, but it doesn't seem to match what, what he's talking about in his Corinthian letters. Uh, but there's more. Uh, another version of this Acts of Paul made it uh, to Ethiopia, and it was preserved in the Ethiopic language. Uh, it's similar, uh, but a little bit different as well. Let's read this one. Oh, no, sorry. I got one last thing. Uh, finishing that story, uh, the lions lay down at his, at his, in front of him, and then an awful hailstorm came and crushed the heads of many men and wild beasts and shore off the ear of the governor. And as a result, the governor turned to the god of Paul and was baptized. Uh, but the lion ran away to the mountains, and Paul sailed on to Macedonia and Greece. So, so I forgot, we had to finish the story with a hailstorm and knocking the guy's ear off. All right, now the Ethiopic Acts of Paul. One day, Paul was traveling in the mountains, and as he was walking, he came across a lion, 12 cubits tall and as big as a horse. Now, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not too familiar with cubits, but 12 cubits would be like 18 feet if I know cubits, and that's a lot bigger than a horse. Uh, so maybe these are Ethiopian cubits are different than what I'm used to. Uh, but a, a big lion, okay? And Paul and the lion greeted each other as though they knew each other. And the lion said to Paul, Well met, Paul, servant of God and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have one thing which I ask you to do for me. Now, what could a talking lion want from Paul? What's the one thing that, that this lion would want? Uh, Paul said, tell me. The lion said, make me to enter into the great things of the Christians. And Paul took him and made him to enter into the great things of the Christians. And I did, did he just baptize a talking lion here? This is it's getting really weird. And they said goodbye, and Paul returned to the city. In the next town, the king met Paul and said to him, look, you're corrupting all of our people. When they hear you, they're renouncing the things of the world. I can hear a little bit of echo of what happened in Ephesus there. Uh, he commanded them to throw Paul in prison, and, as they, and they did as the king commanded. And the next day they took Paul from the prison and brought him to, into the theater. And they set a lion in ambush for Paul in the theater, a lion 12 cubits tall and as big as a horse. Can you, can you see where this is going to go? Uh, the one that had met Paul in the mountains, that Paul had made to enter into the great things of the Christians. And Paul stretched forth his hands and prayed, and the lion also prayed after him. Paul worshipped, and the lion also worshipped with him. And the lion said to Paul, They brought you that I might devour you. Did they not know that we were dear to one another? We are servants of our Lord. Well, that, that's a weird story, i got to say. Uh, I don't think... I maybe don't need to keep telling you that's not a true story. This is not a biblical story. Uh, but I'll repeat it just to, in case you maybe just came in and you thought uh, this was from Acts uh, in the Bible. This is uh, the made-up Acts of Paul. But it's what people are wondering. They're wondering, what were these wild beasts that Paul fought in Ephesus? Now, like I said, the, the whole... 
Christians in the arena. That comes a little bit later. Uh, so I, I think that maybe this is not a literal wild beast, uh, that he is talking metaphorically about some challenge that he faced in Ephesus. And, and that he, he admits put him to the point of death, that he was worried uh, that he was not going to live. Uh, maybe this is some Jewish opposition. Maybe this is uh, some more fallout from uh, the, the pagan uh, idol craftsmen uh, who see him as a threat to them. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I don't think it was a talking lion that he baptized. Uh, but there, there's something here. Uh, and you, you perhaps can even see a shift in the way Paul talks at this point in Ephesus. Uh, that before uh, this event, whatever it was, uh, when he writes to, to the Thessalonian church, uh, he talks about being alive when Jesus comes back. Uh, he says, you know, some the people who have died will, will rise first, and then those of us who are left, me included, will uh, go and see our Lord. Uh, and that kind of language starts to drop off in Paul, that he starts to, to maybe realize uh, that he may die before Jesus returns. Uh, he's still confident that Jesus will return, uh, but he's becoming more aware of his own mortality uh, with this brush with death that he faces. Uh, and he's a little bit uh, less certain about uh, whether or not he will uh, die before Jesus comes or not. Uh, so th there's something here, uh, but unfortunately we don't have uh, a clear picture of what, what has happened. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about uh, the, the theory for Paul being in prison in Ephesus when we, we get to the, the prison letters. Uh, I think these were all written later in that Paul is, when Paul is in prison in Rome. Uh, but there is, I think, a good argument to be made that Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus uh, and that he wrote uh, Colossians and Philemon uh, when he is there in prison. Uh, but we'll, we'll save those for later. Uh, next week, uh, Paul's going to make a painful visit to Corinth. Uh, it's going to prompt him to write a harsh and tearful letter to the church there. Uh, this is a letter that has not uh, been preserved for us today. Uh, and that after that letter, then he, he gets a response from Corinth and he writes another letter. This is the you know, third or fourth letter he's written to them now, uh, but it's one we call 2 Corinthians, uh, a letter of reconciliation. Uh, so that after uh, this difficult visit, uh, there's going to be uh, a ministry of reconciliation. We'll get into that next week. Let's close this morning with a, a prayer from Paul that he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And I say, amen. Thank you for your attention this morning. 
I hope to see you next week as we continue uh, with 2 Corinthians.